Hello, Set Apart Saints. This is David Nakao Wilcoxon. This audio is from the Olivet Discourse Decoded video series. The videos were low-tech, mostly me just reading what's on the screen. So you're not missing much in the audio version. The Olivet Discourse Decoded PDFs that I refer to in the lessons can be found at www.theolivetdiscourse.com. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, Set Apart Saints. This is David. And in this lesson, I'm going to begin going through the verse-by-verse explanation of Matthew 24. So please put aside any preconceived notions of what pastors have told you and just look at what scripture is proclaiming. The enemy has caused people to assign the Olivet Discourse's fulfillment to the end times so that they don't understand the truth about what happened in the first century. Let me start by saying that I'm not teaching this just to prove out prophecy fulfillment. I'm showing you the fulfillment so that you can see the deception of the enemy, which assigns it to the future, so that you're not misled about how the end times will play out, and so that you're not caught by surprise by Messiah's return, who comes as a thief in the night to those who are misled by prophecy. And most importantly, I'm showing you the fulfillment because it validates the authority of the Bible and it proves the deity of Messiah who foretold these events. This is why the enemy has worked so hard to hide the truth, as to cover over the truth that validates the word. Understanding the fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse gives us tangible evidence of our faith as we see more of the glory of our beloved Messiah. The historical record validates that Messiah's warnings in his Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in the first century, in that generation of Jews, just as he proclaimed. This authenticates his deity, so it's really important to understand this prophecy. I've added insight from esteemed theologians who wrote whole Bible commentaries during the 17th through 20th centuries, which show that people have understood the historical fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse for a long time. And it's only during the last century or two that the futuristic deceptions have taken hold in the church. I could have included many more commentaries on every verse to reinforce the historical fulfillment, but that would be redundant and boring. I've also added in the witness of Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century. He was the son of a priest of Jerusalem, who himself fought against the Romans in the beginning of the war and was compelled to be present to witness what happened afterwards. He wrote Antiquities of the Jews in 20 books and the Jewish Wars in 7 books, which you can find online. So he documented what took place in the first century in Judea, which is very important to understand if we want to see the fulfillment of Messiah's Olivet Discourse. It's evident that the Father used him to record this particular time of the Jewish nation in the first century so that by his witness, we can see the exact fulfillment of Messiah's declarations in his Olivet Discourse. We'll follow the narrative of Matthew's Gospel, as it was written first, and it's cited the most. I'll add in the recording of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21 and Mark 13 when needed, as they add essential details. Most people focus only on Matthew 24, and miss out on Mark and Luke's insight, which are critical to understanding Messiah's warnings. Note that the Apostle John did not include Messiah's Olivet Discourse in his Gospel, and that's interesting, as it is John who wrote down Messiah's apocalyptic vision of Revelation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all included Messiah's parable of the wicked vine dressers, 
which points to the wicked Jews, who killed the prophets, and the son, who Yah sent to them. The primary reason for John not to include Messiah's parable and the Olivet Discourse is because it appears that he wrote his gospel around 80 to 90 AD, so all of Messiah's warnings had already been fulfilled in 70 AD at the desolation of Jerusalem, the temple, and the Jewish nation. So there was no point in writing about the desolation of the Jewish nation, which had already been fulfilled. People try to give their perspective about Matthew 24 based on that chapter alone. But Messiah is using symbolism that is declared in the Old Testament. If you haven't studied the Old Testament, you won't understand the Olivet Discourse or Revelation. The proper context of the Olivet Discourse is that the Old Testament prophets foretold the coming judgment of the house of Judah. The 70 weeks of Daniel 9 prophecy was given to Daniel when the Jews were in Babylonian captivity and Jerusalem and the temple lay desolated. Then Daniel was told that the Jews would be empowered to go rebuild Jerusalem to prepare the way for the promised Messiah who would appear in the 70th week. This is good news, but Daniel was told the Messiah would be cut off, which points to a violent death. Daniel understood the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which said the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 says that Messiah shall be oppressed and afflicted and shall be cut off for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And Daniel 9.26 says that the people of the prince, the Jews, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Daniel 9.27 says that because of the overspreading of abominations by the Jews, that he, Messiah, shall make the city and the sanctuary desolate. So Daniel understood that the wicked Jewish leaders would reject their promised Messiah and deliver him up to be killed. The punishment for their grievous sin was that the temple and the city would be destroyed. So this is why Daniel was so sad for three weeks, and he prayed for more information. The message in Daniel 12 answered that prayer, as it points to the judgment of the Jewish nation. Daniel was told that from the occurrence of the abomination of desolation, and the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, would be three and a half years. That was fulfilled during the Jewish-Roman War of 66-70 to AD, which I will explain in detail in a future lesson in this series. For now, note that the Jewish-Roman War of 66-70 to AD, which took place within a generation of Messiah's Olivet Discourse, brought a time of great tribulation upon the Jewish nation, as their city and temple were destroyed and 1.1 million Jews were killed. The key points and challenging passages of Messiah's Olivet Discourse will be covered in detail in future lessons, so please don't dismiss the summary explanation as I go through it. So I'm going to go through the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse by verse, but the key passages, the most important passages, I will focus on in future lessons so we can get more in depth. So in Matthew 24, 1 says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. The context is that Messiah had just rebuked the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, cast woes upon them, and declared that judgment was coming upon them in that generation. Said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets, and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. 
Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. So Messiah proclaimed that the judgment of the Jewish nation would take place in that generation. Then Messiah made a profound statement about the temple. Beforehand, Messiah called it his father's house, but now he's saying that it's the Jewish place of desolation. So Matthew twenty-three thirty-eight says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The focus is on the desolation of the temple, which Messiah had just left for the last time. The temple had been rebuilt in great splendor by Herod. The disciples would have understood the prophecy in Daniel 9.26, which declared that the temple would be destroyed. The context of the Olivet Discourse is Messiah pointing to events that led to the determined desolation of Jerusalem, the temple, and the Jewish nation, which was fulfilled during the Jewish-Roman War of 66-70 AD. Matthew 24.2 says, And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. It's interesting that during the rebuilding of the temple, during the first seven-week period of the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 prophecy, the prophet Haggai noted the laying of stone upon stone. Haggai 2.15 says, And now, I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. So we see the reference that the temple was built stone upon stone, and now Messiah is proclaiming that the temple would be destroyed, as each stone would be cast down, so that they were not on each other anymore. The first verses of Matthew 24 set the stage and established the context. Messiah foretold the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which he had just come out of. So he's not referring to an end-time third temple. So in 70 AD, Roman military leader Titus sought to preserve the temple, as Herod had made it so grand. But the wicked Jews so infuriated the Romans with their killing of their own people. So, so hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed inside the city by other Jews. And it was just a time of sheer wickedness. And that infuriated Titus and the Romans so much that they just declared, destroy it. So Josephus documents that the temple and city were desolated. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but for the rest of the wall. And it's pointing to Antonio Fortress Wall that remains, and that's what's called the Wailing Wall. But it's not the Wailing Wall of the Temple Mount. It's the wall of where Roman Antonio Fortress was. But that's a lesson for another day that we'll get to. But it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those who came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. So, Messiah's words were fulfilled when he said, Not one stone will lay upon another. Albert Barnes, in his Notes on the Bible, which was written in 1832, says, At the time this was spoken, no event was more improbable than this. The temple was vast, rich, and splendid. It was the pride of the nation, and the nation was at peace. Yet in the short space of 40 years, all of this was exactly accomplished. Jerusalem was taken by the Roman armies, under the command of Titus in 70 AD. The account of the siege and destruction of the city is left us by Josephus, a historian of undoubted veracity and singular fidelity. He was a Jewish priest. In the wars, 
of which he gives an account, he fell into the hands of the Romans and remained with them during the siege and destruction of the city. Being a Jew, he would of course say nothing designed to confirm the prophecies of Jesus Christ. Yet his whole history appears almost like a running commentary on these predictions respecting the destruction of the temple. And I'll cover this in more detail in the Not One Stone Left on Another lesson. Matthew 24, 3 says, And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? These things refers to Messiah's proclamation, that judgment would come upon the Jewish leaders, and that their temple would be desolated. That is the context of the Olivet Discourse. The phrase, what shall be the sign of thy coming, can be viewed two ways. The words thy coming refers to these things, the judgment of the Jewish leaders and the destruction of the temple. The King James uses terms to identify who and what are being referred to in the passage. If the disciples were asking about Messiah's return for his saints, the text would say, your coming. By using the impersonal thy coming, it's pointing to what Messiah just proclaimed about the desolation of judgment of the Jewish nation and the temple being destroyed. So when are those things going to happen? But even if they were asking about Messiah's return, it's in the proper context of Messiah's declaration to the high priest that he would see him coming on the clouds of heaven, meaning in judgment of the Jewish nation. So Mark fourteen sixty two says, And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Daniel seven thirteen to 14 foretold the coming of the Son of Man. It's not referring to his return in the end times, but to his setting up his father's kingdom. Says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That took place in the first century, when the fourth beast kingdom, the mighty Roman Empire, was in power. Since then, the kingdom has expanded to every nation in the world. And I'll cover Messiah setting up his father's kingdom in a future lesson in this series. Regarding the phrase, what shall be the sign of thy coming, it's interesting that the Strong's Greek dictionary word for coming is parousia, which means being near, advent, especially of Christ to punish Jerusalem. So it's interesting that Strong's Greek Dictionary points to Messiah coming in power on the clouds, and it's pointing to his punishment of Jerusalem, not to his return. Regarding the last question about the end of the world, the word world should be translated as age. The Greek word means properly an age, specifically the Jewish messianic period. The same word is used in Hebrews 9.26, which is referring to Messiah's sacrifice occurring in the latter days of the Jewish age. It says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In that verse, the word world is used twice. The first world in Hebrews 9.26 is the Greek word cosmos, which can mean the whole world, which was created in the beginning. The second world in Greek is aeon, which means an age, especially a messianic period. Matthew was referring to the end of the age, not the end of the world. Had that been the intent, the Greek word cosmos would have been used.
Messiah had just declared in Matthew 23 that the Jewish leaders would be desolated, which would end the Jewish nation's existence. The destruction of the temple would have been considered the end of the world to the Jewish people, to whom Matthew was primarily writing. The former days of the Jewish nation ended when the Jews were taken captive by the Babylonians. So their temple was destroyed, their city was destroyed, and they were in captivity. So the former days existed before that. The latter days of the Jewish nation started when they were released from Babylonian captivity in the 5th century BC, and it ended in 70 AD when once again the temple and the city and the Jewish leaders were wiped out, desolated. Notice that the other two recordings of the Olivet Discourse do not include the question about the end of the world. So, Mark 13.4 says, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things be fulfilled? So, see how you worded that? When shall the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And he's pointing directly to the judgment of the Jewish leaders and the desolation of the temple. Luke 21.7 says, And they asked him, Master, but when shall these things be done? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? They're directly asking him, not about his return, but about the desolation of the temple and the judgment of the Jews. So Mark and Luke understood that the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple marked the end of the latter days of the Jewish nation. So they didn't include the question about the end of the world, the end of the age. Matthew 24, 4 says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Keep in mind that the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 prophecy foretold that Messiah would appear in the 70th week. The disciples may have thought that after the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel were over, that Messiah would return to reign in Jerusalem. So Messiah is correcting them so that others would not mislead them. Messiah is proclaiming that his disciples should take heed of his warning so that they're not deceived. The second person terms you and ye are pointing to his disciples. They're not being used in a third person tense to the end time saints. You'll see that each time Messiah says you and ye, that his disciples faced all of the things that he described. Matthew 24, 5 says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. The 70 weeks of Daniel 9 prophecy foretold that Messiah the Prince would appear 483 years after the prophecy started. It was initiated with the command from Persian king Archaxerxes in 457 BC, which places the 70th week of Daniel from 27 to 34 AD. In Luke 19.44, Messiah proclaimed that many Jews did not understand that he is the promised Messiah. It says, And shall lay thee even unto the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of my visitation. So people didn't accept the promised Messiah at that time when he was supposed to appear in 27 AD. They were ripe to be deceived by people who proclaimed that they are the Christ, the anointed one that the prophecy foretold. Luke 21.8 adds that the time in which many would say they are the Christ drew near, proving that it happened in that generation, and does not point to the end times. It says, and he said, Take heed that ye not be deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and the time draws near. Go ye not therefore after them. Acts 21.38 mentions one who led many out into the desert. It says, Are not thou that Egyptian, which before these days made us an uproar, and led us out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? The word Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ, but it also means in place of Christ. 
John proclaims that at the writing of his epistle, there were many antichrists, people who came in the name of Christ. 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is at the last time. And as you have heard that antichrist shall come, even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible says, While the Jews were in expectation of a Messiah as a temporal prince or deliverer, there were more of them than afterwards. For everyone who could get a party together to color his sedition and rebellion gave out himself to be the Christ. Of this number are said to have been Thaddeus and Judas of Galilee, mentioned by Gamaliel in Acts 5, 36-37. Amongst these, some also reckon the Egyptian, mentioned in Acts 21:38, and Simon Magus, who gave out himself to be some great one, and the people accounted him the great power of God. Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible notes, Josephus says that there were many who, pretending to divine inspiration, deceived the people, leading out numbers of them to the desert, pretending that God would there show them the signs of liberty, meaning redemption from the Roman power and that an Egyptian false prophet led 30,000 men into the desert, who were almost all cut off by Felix. It was a just judgment for God to deliver up that people into the hands of false Christ, who had rejected the true one. Soon after our Lord's crucifixion, Simon Magus appeared, and persuaded the people of Samaria that he was the great power of God, and boasted among the Jews that he was the Son of God. Of the same stamp and character was also Dositheus, the Samaritan, who pretended that he was the Christ foretold by Moses. About twelve years after the death of our Lord, when Cuspius Fatus was procurator of Judea, arose an impostor of the name of Thaddeus, who said he was a prophet, and persuaded a great multitude to follow him with their best effects to the Jordan River, which he promised to divide for their passage. And saying these things, says Josephus, he deceived many almost the very words of our Lord. So we can see that there were people who proclaimed to be the anointed one, the Christ, before the Jewish-Roman War of 66-70 to AD. I'll continue the verse-by-verse explanation of the Olivet Discourse in the next lesson. Thank you for listening to this Olivet Discourse Decoded audio. You can save and print Olivet Discourse Decoded PDF summaries. You can request a free copy of the Olivet Discourse Decoded book or order a printed copy at www.theolivetdiscourse.com. Please share this podcast audio with others so that they can see the glory of Messiah in the fulfillment. I love y'all. Shalom.